Welcome to the fifth session of Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. This session is entitled Living from the Inside Out. Now, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to beat a dead horse tonight. I'm going to say the same thing in as many ways as I can to ingrain in us the truth about who we truly are. And I'm going to start in Romans 7. Now, Paul opens up Romans 7 with the theme of slavery that he began in Romans 6. And he uses the analogy of marriage to describe what it was like living under the old covenant law. In verse 1 of Romans 7, he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man for as long as he lives. So the old covenant law, every single person was a slave to that law for as long as he lived. And the only way he could be released from it would be to die. And then Paul begins this analogy of marriage. Verse 2, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law, legally tied to her husband, as long as he lives, whether she likes it or not. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. But if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress because you can't be married to two men at the same time. But if he dies, she's free from that law and she's no adulteress even if she marries another man. So, The analogy is being married to the law versus being married to Jesus. So think of it this way. Being married to Mr. Law means your identity is in your performance and you're given the name sinner. But being married to Mr. Grace means your identity is in Jesus and you've been given the name righteous. Now, there's nothing wrong with Mr. Law. He is faithful to his wife. He does not commit adultery. But the problem with Mr. Law is that he demands and demands from his wife, but he doesn't lift a finger to help her. Instead, he uses that finger to wag disapproval. Now, there's going to come a point where Mr. Law's wife is going to wish that he were dead. But the problem with Mr. Law is that he can't die. He is eternal because he came from God. So since Mr. Law cannot die, what is the only way that his wife can be released from this marriage? She would have to die. Now, that wife represents us. We had to die to the condemnation of the law and the identity as sinner. But here's the question. How do you die and still live? Well, the next couple of verses tell us. Next verse, verse 4. And you, the wife, also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. So that's what happened. We died. But actually, he died our death. So even our death was supplied by our new husband. And why did he do it? So that you may be married to another, to him, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, there was no way that we as sinners would ever be compatible with our new husband. So a whole new bride of his kind was born in the resurrection, and he created us anew to have his very own nature. And when we're joined to Jesus, we are going to bear the fruit of that union. And what is that fruit? Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So our husband, Jesus, is our great supplier of the heavenly fruit of righteousness. And every single morning... By His Spirit, the resurrected Jesus supplies us for everything we're going to need to meet the demands of the day. But Jesus did not marry us for us to be His slaves. No, the the preacher doesn't say to the bride and groom, do you take so-and-so to be your slave for the rest of your life? No, he says, do you take so-and-so to love and to cherish all the days of your life? 
And that's what Jesus did. And that's what He continues to do. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. And why did He do it? That He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the Word. That He might present her to Himself a glorious church without having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You know, we talk about the washing of the water by the Word, but what is the Word? It's right there in Ephesians 5. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. It's the gospel. That is the word that has cleansed us. All right, back to Romans 7. And the old days of being married to Mr. Law. When we were, past tense, in the flesh, under law, attempting to perfect ourselves in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members, in our flesh, to bear fruit to death. So those sinful passions are aroused by the law. If you want to get rid of sinful passions, get the law out of your life. Because the law is going to put demands on the flesh to overcome the power of sin. But the problem is, the power of sin is more powerful than your willpower to overcome it. Paul said in Romans 8, 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. The worst thing we can do is set our minds on the flesh and attempt through rules and regulations and willpower to force compliance in the flesh. Because all it's going to do is bear fruit to death. Sin consciousness and sin management in the flesh arouses sin. Confidence in the flesh is going to lead to the works of the flesh that Paul also listed in Galatians 5 a bunch of sinful behaviors he listed there, all sorts, because self-righteousness arouses sin. But when our minds are set on Jesus and His love and His constant supply, we are going to bear fruit to life because we're going to be living out of our true nature and the true desire that we have to walk after the Spirit. You know, to walk after the flesh is to suppress your true desires. But now, verse, seven, verse 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit from within and not the oldness of the letter from without. So what were we held by? What have we been delivered from? The law. Those outward demands for perfection on our bankrupt flesh. And we have been set free to live from the inside out by the Spirit. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, thou shalt not covet. What's he talking about? The Ten Commandments. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. The law is like wood on fire. Paul said, the more I try not to covet, the more I covet. But listen, Romans 7, 8 doesn't say sin by itself producing me all manner of evil desire. It says sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. So here's why people fall into sinful behaviors. First of all, there is a temptation. It can come as a thought. It can come as something you see. It can come as a memory. But then before you sin, there's another stage because you never go directly from temptation to sin. There's an in-between. And it's called when temptation meets confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh. That is the conception that gives birth to sin. But Paul says in Philippians 3.3, 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. 
When we put confidence in the flesh, we fall back into the performance mentality, the law that says, I can handle this. I can handle this on my own. And then after we fail, there, we get into guilt. And with guilt comes new resolutions. I'm never going to do that again. And you get into these extreme rules. And when we say never again, you know what the devil says? He says, Yahoo. Because he loves those resolutions because they presume on our own strength and give fresh propensity to more and more sinning. I think the devil knows 1 Corinthians 15, 56 better than we do. The strength of sin is the law. So here's the cycle of sin under that law mindset. We sin and then we beg for forgiveness as though we're not already forgiven. Then we say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Grace, grace. Then we live as if we're not forgiven and you will live like what you believe you are. And then we're going to put confidence back in our flesh again. Law, law, I can handle this. And then we fail and then we have guilt and then we beg for forgiveness and start that whole cycle over again. I call that spiritual adultery. Going from law to grace to law to grace. Why don't we just stay with Mr. Grace, our husband, Mr. Grace. And instead of trying to do our best and be better Christians when we fail, why don't we say... Mr. Grace, what do you say right now? And he'll say, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That's our empowerment. Our empowerment is knowing that we're still married to Jesus even when we fail. Mr. Grace is never going to leave us nor forsake us. Mr. Grace is never going to divorce us. He has promised to forever supply us with his heavenly righteousness forever. Next verse, or continuing verse 8. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Why don't we keep it dead? Who do you think is using the law today? Who stands to gain the most from the body of Christ, never knowing who she is in Christ, and never knowing that she has been set free from the law and set free from sin? It's the accuser of the brethren. Satan's main agenda is, is not just to try to get us to sin, it's, his plan is to try to get us to obey the commandments in our flesh. Why? Because he knows, Galatians 3.12, that the law is not of faith. To try to be right with God through the law is of the flesh. But we, we will never be righteous by our works. We are only righteous by faith. And Paul says in Romans 14.23, whatever is not from faith is sin. So the devil tries to get us to be law keepers, for our very efforts to try not to sin in the flesh is sin. And the devil is a prosecutor. He is an expert in the law. So if we try to use the law to be right with God, you know, Lord, didn't I do that? And didn't I do that? The devil is going to nail us to the wall with his fiery darts of shame and condemnation because he's going to say, but you didn't do that. And you didn't do that well enough. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, not by itself again, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by the commandment, using it as a weapon, sin killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. Yes, the commandment is holy, but it cannot make you holy. It is just, but it cannot justify you. It is good, but it cannot make you good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So the law 
in its intended severity shows how terrible sin is. But there is nothing wrong with the law. But when combined with temptation and human effort, it always leads to death. The law is going to lead us to the end of our flesh, to that place of surrender to the endless supply of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 14, Paul begins to describe the battle that rages. Now, some theologians that I really respect believe that Paul is talking about his life before he was saved. Others believe this is just the human condition for all, lost or saved. But at any event, we can all relate because we all have sinful desires at times. Okay, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. Why is that? Because it was written with the finger of God. But I'm carnal. In other words, I have this flesh to deal with, which is sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I, my true self, who do it, but sin, an unwelcome trespasser, that dwells in me. And he's going to clarify that in a second. He's going to say, in my flesh. But Paul is saying that it's not his true self who's doing it. It's sin. Okay, it's a source called sin. We may sin, but it's not who we are. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, he clarifies, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. I don't find good. Where? In my flesh. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Where? In my flesh, he says. So Paul concluded that it is not his true identity doing the wrong. It is the power of sin in his flesh attempting to prevent him from being who he truly is. Now, the word flesh in the Greek is the word sarx, and it means self-effort or outward performance. Some modern translations interpret this Greek word sarx to be sinful nature as if a believer has a sin nature. But sarx doesn't mean sinful and it doesn't mean nature. It simply means flesh and it could even just mean your physical body. How can we have a sin nature when we're partakers of the divine nature of Jesus Christ? But unfortunately, because of mistranslations of this word sarx, many Christians believe that their ongoing battle is with their own sin nature. So they go from believing that they are sinners at their core to believing that the most natural thing for them to do is to sin. But if you are a new creation in Christ, nothing could be further from the truth. It is completely unnatural, unnatural for you to sin. It goes completely, it is completely inconsistent with your true nature. All right, let's get to the glorious end of this struggle. Verse 21, I find then a law, not the law, but a principle that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, in my flesh, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin in my members. So the battle is between these two laws. The one is the law of sin in the flesh, and the other is the law of God in the inward man. And the battlefield is the mind. O wretched man that I am, who, not what, but who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, I want to read that in the message because I like the clarity. Jesus acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. But with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. And how is it resolved? Let's look at the next verse. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that word condemnation is the Greek word katakrima, and it means judging to be guilty, a sentence worthy of punishment. So no katakrima or no condemnation means not a single judging of you worthy of punishment remains. Even when you fail, there is no condemnation. And why is this? The next verse. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You know, God prepared a body for his son, a body like ours, yet without sin, that it might bear the sin of our sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean, condemned? It has been subdued, overcome, and deprived of its power to condemn us, to control us, to identify us, or to separate us from God. So now the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is our want-tos on the inside. It's the royal law of love. It's the perfect law of liberty. All right, now I'm going to move into Colossians 2 where Paul begins to explain what happened to us when when we were delivered from the law and joined to Jesus. Colossians 2, verse 9. For in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Jesus, who is the head of all principality and power. That word complete means to fill to the top so that nothing is wanting to render perfect, to lack nothing. So our starting point in Christ is the finish line. The moment you were born again, there was an inward transformation that instantly filled you with all the fullness of God. Verse 11, For in Jesus you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. What is that talking about? The cross, cutting away the flesh from your, your spiritual identity by putting away or putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So you were buried with Jesus in baptism into His death in which you were also raised with Him. How? Through faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses. How many? All. If you're not forgiven of all, you're not forgiven at all. All right, I'm going to use an illustration to illustrate this cutting away of the flesh from the old man, releasing him to die so that the new man could be born. Okay, so this is the old man. He was joined to the flesh, dead in his sins, joined to the flesh. And when we were made alive in Christ, the the old man was cut away from the flesh. In that spiritual circumcision, the old man with his sin nature was crucified, dead, buried with Christ. He ceased to exist. He has no resurrection power. But in the resurrection, a whole new man was born a new creation with a new nature and a new identity in Christ. 
The new man is joined to the Lord. He was joined to the Lord as one spirit with Him. Now the flesh remains, and we all know that. The flesh remains, and that's where sin operates. But the power of sin can no longer identify us or condemn us or have dominion over us. And listen, the flesh, the flesh and blood was not saved in the new birth. You know the flesh and blood is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But we're going to get new, incorruptible bodies that are 100% compatible with the new man and the spirit. But for now, this sin, the power of sin is confined to the flesh and there's a great chasm between the new man and the sin in the flesh. And it's called as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed my sins from me. And because this is not about what I do, it's about what Jesus has done. So no matter what I do, it will not change who I am because this is about what happened at the cross and was accomplished in the finished work of Jesus with the cross cutting away the flesh from our identity. It's good news. Now, I want to talk for just a minute about spirit, soul, and body. The spirit, that is where our true nature, our true identity is. So the spirit of the old man died. But the spirit of the new man is the new creation who is a holy, righteous, faultless, perfect child of God. And then we have the soul, which is our mind, our will, our emotions, our feelings, our personality. The Greek word is suke, our natural soul life. And then we also have our body of flesh. Okay, so there's the spirit joined to Jesus and then there's flesh which comprises our soul and our body, which is unique to each one of us and is very useful. This earthen vessel houses our spirit. And also, this earthen vessel is useful as instruments of righteousness to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus through good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But the flesh without the living redeemed spirit is subject to the law of sin. And without Jesus, we're left to our own willpower and our own strength. But every single one of us has our breaking point. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new spirit man. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God has totally changed us in our spirit, in our innermost being. But if we do not understand this concept of spirit, soul and body, we're going to get confused and it's going to actually lead to unbelief. Our emotions, our decision-making, our feelings, our actions in the body, obviously we're not instantly made new. The only part of us that was made brand new in the, in the new birth is our spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, All things have become new. This cannot possibly be referring to your emotions or your behavior because 2 Corinthians 5.17 is not a process. It is something that has already happened. It's an accomplished fact. It's a done deal. So the change that took place in our spirit must work its way into our soul and into our body. But if we don't understand this, we're going to think that nothing has changed. We're going to say, but, but I still have the old thoughts, but I still have the, the old bad habits. Maybe I'm not even saved, right? And people can begin to believe they're not even saved. That's unbelief in what Jesus has done. But we need to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin and believe that in our spirit, our true selves, right now, we are as perfect, as mature, and as complete as Jesus is. And then we're going to live out in our soul and in our body this truth that we believe in our spirit. All right, next verse in Colossians 
2 where after it says having forgiven you all trespasses it says having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us the law was against us it was contrary to us but he has taken it out, out of the way having nailed it to the cross whose handwriting is this this is God's own handwriting now he can take his hand, own handwriting away and nail it to the cross through the flesh of his own son Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. At one time, the devil was armed. What was his, what was his weapon? It was the weapon of the law, the handwriting written against us. And the devil still tries to use the law today, even though it's been taken away. And here's how he does it. He says, just obey that law and it'll make you holy. Just obey that law and you'll be closer to God. But our response needs to be, I'm already holy through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And how much closer can I be than He's in me and I'm in Him? Can you see how the devil tries to confuse us about who we truly are? Trying to convince us that the work is not yet finished, that we are not yet complete in Christ. And his main plan is to get us working, 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 to get us to focus on fruit and not the source. Are you bearing fruit? You better get to work. Bear some fruit. So a lot of people are doing to be instead of realizing that they already are complete in Christ. So we're not trying to be someone. We're not trying to be Jesus, right? We're beholding to know that someone. And when we know that someone, we're going to know who we are in Him. So we're not doing to be. We find that we are, and then we find ourselves doing. So inside these bodies is a mystery that religion will never understand because religion is always focused on what focused on what can be seen instead of what is unseen. So there's a progressiveness to our Christian life because there's a progressive manifestation of what already is, what can't, we can't see in the Spirit. Outwardly, it appears that we're getting more sanctified because our actions are changing. But actually, we are already made holy. We are already set apart and joined to Jesus in our true selves, in our spirit. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And what is that treasure? The Spirit of Jesus Christ joined to our spirit so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. And people will look at us, but they'll glorify Him because they're going to see that it's His power and not ours. and They're going to be drawn to Him and not us. And that's, that's the way it is under grace. You're not trying to get people to be drawn to you. They're drawn to Jesus through you coming through you. Your life is like a sieve for these good works that glorify Him. So today, our failures and our missing of the mark cannot separate us from God's love because sin is confined to the flesh and can no longer condemn us or identify us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's look at Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up on a cross for us all. How shall He not with Jesus freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is risen, and is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us with His blood, with His scars. Those are the receipts of our redemption. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I tell you what, if you begin to believe this gospel in its purity, 
Nothing will stop you. Yeah, they'll come after you. They'll persecute you, but you'd be willing to die for this gospel because you know how much you're loved. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, even my failures in the future, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including the devil, shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Romans 8 began with no condemnation and ends with no separation. Good news. Amen.